Hello and welcome to another live episode of USCCA's Ask an Attorney. I'm Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine and director of content here at the USCCA. I'm not the attorney. Tom Grieve is the attorney and uh, this is your members only opportunity to uh, ask us questions on legal topics. Uh, today, uh, Max, apparently we're talking about uh, things like uh, the Castle Doctrine and other concealed carry issues. Um, but uh, the first big question is, is this available on a replay? And yes, absolutely it is. Um, you can watch this replay on your USCCA members only dashboard anytime you want up until we run the next one, except for elite members who get to watch it anytime they want. They get access to the full archive. So you might want to consider upgrading yourself to elite status so that you can watch Tom and I anytime you want. Tom, thanks for coming in again. Always a pleasure. Tom is uh, uh, the, uh, what, what do I call you, the, the founding partner of Grieve Law or, or something like that? Or, or? So uh, I started uh, my law firm, which has now become the largest criminal defense firm in the entire state of Wisconsin. Most of our attorneys, just like myself, are former state prosecutors. So we've actually been on both sides of the aisle. I've been involved with firearm law, concealed carry law, self-defense law, um, going back to the time when actually I interned in the Court of Appeals. Um, which was pre my time as a prosecutor. So it's always been a passion of mine to be involved in this area, something I have a lot of personal vested beliefs in, and I'm always happy to help people out. Well, great. I, uh, I love hanging out with people who are smarter than me because it always, it always uh, <laughs> elevates my, uh, my game just a little bit. But, so you must hate uh, hanging out here then, Oh, right? man. <laughs> <laughs> so a bunch of questions from last week. Um, kept on, on rolling through. Um, uh, I shouldn't say last week, last month, um, kept on rolling through. Um, but we'll start with what is the Castle Doctrine? Um, let's give a quick explanation of what that is to sure. the folks out there. So Castle Doctrine, very simply, um, is part two in a two-part equation. So as an attorney, it's my job to make everything sound way more complicated. But as being here, they always force me to break it down to try to make it as simple as possible so uh, things can stick. So let me try to do this. It starts off with self-defense, all right? Self-defense laws vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Generally speaking, you have to be engaged with some sort of deadly threat in order to use deadly force back. If you remember nothing else, it's that, okay? Um, what Castle Doctrine does is that if there are certain triggering criteria and circumstances that are met, it basically implies or allows you to legally assume that there is a deadly threat. Example. If you are on the street and somebody pulls out a knife and is charging you or pulls out a gun and starts shooting you or shooting at you, I think that the obvious argument here is that, yes, you have been engaged by a deadly threat. Castle Doctrine allows you to assume that, as an example here in Wisconsin, if somebody's in the process of breaking into your home, your place of business, or your motor vehicle where you are located, you don't have to necessarily wait for that crescendo moment, which maybe depending upon your state and jurisdiction, you have to. So it allows you a lot of times to act a little bit earlier and it puts a little bit of an easier and sometimes a lot of it easier burden of proof on you, your attorney and your defense team when it comes to keeping your butt out of prison. Yeah, well, the way it was explained to me was that uh, the Castle Doctrine uh, tells the court what they must assume. The court must assume that the, the bad guy was there to cause great bodily harm or death and and that just it doesn't give you the automatic right to use deadly force but it just it all of the rules still apply it's just that it, now it's easier to prove that that this was an imminent deadly threat the rules always apply so obviously if the bad guy uh, throws himself down to the ground and surrenders to your mercy no one here is suggesting that you should still use deadly force at that point however it does change some of the legal criteria and burdens involved as to when and how you can use that force um, but again, keep in mind that if they break off the attack, 
if it is very clear that they are a threat or part and no longer a threat, uh, that's a different set of circumstances. Yep. And remember, it's absolutely true that all the force you use must be objectively reasonable. And that's, that's what it will be judged by in the end. And honest to God, if you're involved in a deadly force incident, there will be an investigation and people will be looking into this. So um, next question up from a fellow named Dan, and I think we covered it a little bit. Are stand your ground and castle doctrine laws the same everywhere? And uh, one no. word answer. <laughs> no, one word answer. Keep in mind that also these laws vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And that's a key word because a lot of times when people hear that, they think state, but you have to keep in mind that many states lack what we call a preemption law. A preemption law, in, uh, like here in Wisconsin, means that municipalities and counties, legal entities that are smaller than the state, cannot pass firearm laws that are more intrusive than what we have at the state level. In other words, they cannot go above and beyond regulating uh, firearms or punishing firearms or use and so forth than what we have at the state level. Many states have preemption laws, like here in Wisconsin, many states don't. And what that means for the states that do not is that local municipalities, such as towns, villages, as well as counties and so forth, can create their own unique firearm laws over and above the restrictions that you may see at a state level. So that's why there's a key distinction between saying states versus jurisdictions. So I always say check your jurisdiction because that's really what's controlling. All right, thank you very much. Uh, James asks us, are there any disparity of force issues we should consider when the Castle Doctrine applies in our home? And I'm gonna go right away with disparity of force, not just Castle Doctrine, not just in your home, that's anywhere. If, if there is a huge disparity of force, you are allowed to use more force sooner against someone. And, and uh, quite frankly, that can be just about anything. If I know that this guy has um, a previous history of violent behavior or um, really uh, in-depth MMA training and, and he's a, a MMA fighter or something like that, I'm allowed to escalate that force a little bit more qu quickly, am I not? Yes. I, I look at this as kind of, again, a two-pronged issue. Number one, there's what does the law say? Number two, there's how does this actually go down in court, so to speak, okay? So number one, what does the law say? Again, we're going back to, in Wisconsin, it would be if you are reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm. Reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm is gonna be very different. If I'm a six foot five bodybuilder being attacked by a 10 year old or maybe a particularly small or feeble, for lack of a way of putting it, adult, um, and they're trying to swing punches at me, that's gonna be a very different situation if all of a sudden we switch those roles, right. right? And all of a sudden, maybe what started as a, I can't use a firearm in self-defense or I can't use a knife in self-defense, if all of a sudden, if I'm that person that may have a, and I'm gonna throw another legal term at you folks, eggshell skull. Have you heard that one really? before? No, I Eggshell skull, that's right. Uh, in other words, if I have an eggshell for a skull and something bad happens to me, how does that change what happens here? So if you suffer from a particularly debilitating disease, illness, whatever it might be, that may indeed change some of the legal criteria depending upon your jurisdiction as to when and how you can use force because what may not be a deadly threat to most people may be a deadly threat to you. So that comes back to what's the objective use of force, what's the reasonable use of force, and that again comes back to your jurisdiction. That's the legal end to it, but that also ties into how does this go down in court? Because let's face it, that six foot five bodybuilder who's trying to use whatever it is, self-defense law, in their own defense in court is going to be perceived very differently by the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, and so forth, as opposed to if you're that 85-year-old grandma who struggles to get around in her wheelchair. That's just mm -hmm. the, the very real side to this, setting aside the law, is that we're all human, people are human, 
the legal system is filled with various biases and flaws and so forth. Don't turn a blind eye to that, and I'm not saying that that's fair to you, let me be clear. If you'd like to work out or in great shape, I get it. Um, maybe not personally I get it, but I legally understand. Um, but just keep in mind that these things are all different as far as to how it goes down in court. Thank you, Tom. Um, really good question coming up here. Will the Castle Doctrine keep me from being arrested or questioned if I have to use force inside my own home? And I'm going to say no because as a police officer, when I arrive at the scene, I need to find out what's going on. And I'm probably going to separate all the parties and make sure that I can figure out what's going on. So there will be some questioning going on. Yeah, what Kevin said, that, that's the answer is that, no, it's not going to change any of that. Depending on your jurisdiction, it may provide some sort of possible civil immunity as a follow-up. So maybe if you did engage in force to defend yourself, your family, your castle, so to speak, um, perhaps that uh, that law does provide some sort of civil immunity to protect you on the back end so that a civil plaintiff's attorney representing that individual, their family, whatever the case may be, can't sue you for daring to harm their precious snowflake who broke into your house at 3 a.m. with a gun. Um, but that's an entirely different story from are you going to be questioned by the police? The answer is yes. I've never seen a case where you haven't been questioned by the police. So that's going to happen. They're going to try to do it at a minimum. Whether you let them do it is a different question. And to what extent does that proceed to? But they're going to try to, absolutely. And, and that rolls into something that didn't pop up on the screen as a question, but, uh, but something that I really want to stress to people, too. At what point um, do you need to get Mirandized? I hear it all the time. I know my rights, so you've got to read me my rights. Uh, and you know, quite frankly, I don't until I start asking guilt-seeking questions. Right. And I, I can ask some questions, but as long as I'm not asking guilt-seeking questions and, and I haven't put this person, placed them under arrest, at what point am I required to Mirandize someone? That's a really great question, and it's a really long answer that, that uh, we could probably spend an hour going into and not really even get to it, in essence. Courts will conduct what's generally called a Miranda Goodchild hearing. And again, I'm going to go a little bit into technicalities just to give you guys a taste as to what you missed by not being a criminal defense attorney. And then hopefully you'll appreciate the fact that you chose something much better to do with your life than what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> So there's something called a Miranda Goodchild hearing to determine whether or not a defendant's statement could be thrown out as being inadmissible due to the fact that they were not properly Mirandized or they were not Mirandized, period, when they were given a, uh, some questions. Um, what we're looking for, among many, 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 many other things, is whether or not that's basically what's called a custodial statement. So was that person in custody when they gave that statement? And again, I'm painting in super broad strokes, all right? So if there's any retired attorneys out there, I understand that I'm leaving some things out. I get it, all right? Um, but we're looking to see if it's a custodial statement. So was the person in custody for the purposes of Miranda Goodchild? Now, that can be a very slippery slope because I'll tell you, you could be handcuffed in the back of the squad car and that may not be considered a custodial statement for the purposes of Miranda Goodchild. In other words, you could be handcuffed in the back of the squad car and that may not be a situation where Kevin or another officer has to actually read you your rights. It's a very circumstantial, very fact-specific. You already heard Kevin talk about the fact of guilt-seeking questions, but it's a very fact-specific determination. Um, it's not the get-out-of-jail-free card that Hollywood writers seem to think that it is. That's... Uh, it Thanks for not taking an hour. So um, we'll, we'll, It's uh, a struggle. Yeah. I try. <laughs> we'll I'm an attorney. I speak in 90-minute in yeah. increments. Yeah. So. And uh, the next follow-up question to that is, is, will my gun be confiscated immediately in a defensive gun use? And I can tell you, um, when a police officer gets to the scene and there's guns involved, 
our training tells us to secure that scene. And that means we're going to take charge of everything around there, especially the weapons. I know that no one's going to shoot me with a weapon that I have in my possession or locked in my police car. So I'm going to take those weapons, I'm going to put them in a safe place, and then we're going to try to figure out what's going on. When the detectives or the people who are doing the investigation get there, they might decide they want to keep those weapons as part of the investigation. So it, it probably varies from location to location based on policy, I would imagine. So I'd imagine based on policy, it, it probably has a lot to do. So in my own practice, I've seen it go both ways, believe it or not. Uh, a lot of times in the self-defense use, um, officers somewhat surprisingly do not confiscate weapons. They'll obviously detain them while they're securing the scene, while they're conducting initial interviews to try to figure out What's the lay of the land here? What happened? Who did what to whom, why, and when? Uh, but not all the time do I have clients uh, lose their firearm. Sometimes officers actually return the firearm before leaving the scene. It seems to be predicated upon, in, in my individual experience as a practicing attorney in this, in this arena, um, heavily on two things. One, Kevin already touched upon. What's the standard operating procedure for if there are any in that particular county, jurisdiction, wherever it is that you are. A lot of times bureaucracies, as I'm sure we all know, like to promulgate their own rules and their own guidelines as far as here's what you shall do if and when this happens. So keep in mind the officers that you're interacting with, God forbid, should that ever happen, they may have no discretion in the matter. They may be forced to, do, to, to fulfill the policy uh, or else it's their butt, all right? Number two though, I've seen, uh, I would say that the better uses of self-defense. In other words, the cases where it looks reasonably clean cut that the actor who used self-defense, who used that firearm or that weapon in self-defense uh, is, is going to be an innocent individual cleared of charges, perhaps not even charged. On the, that end of the spectrum, I see those, uh, those firearms less likely to be confiscated. Uh, again, initially taken when officers arrive, but returned before they leave. Uh, I have seen that happen. Um, yeah, and people have to remember too that when cops show up at a scene, they don't know what's going on. They, they, they get a very cryptic dispatch call right. that there's a shooting or a gun involved or something like that. Get there and figure it out. And, right. and one of the things um, we do when we get there to figure it out is make sure that we're not going to get shot. So right. uh, to do that is set the guns aside and make sure it works. Um, next question up is one I've never heard before, so I'm just going to throw it right over to you. Oh, good. <laughs> is, is the Castle Doctrine different from the I feared for my life defense? And I, I never heard the I feared for my life. It, you know. Yeah, uh, I assume what they're talking about by the I feared for my, my life defense would be self-defense. Uh, namely, the I acted in self-defense because I was in reasonable or imminent fear of death or great mm -hmm. bodily harm, i.e. I feared for my life yeah. defense. Uh, yes and no, and what I mean by that is, look, if a Girl Scout takes a step inside your front door or for whatever reason pushes open your door and is brandishing a box of Girl Scout cookies, that's probably not the time to, to do a magazine dump. That's probably the worst thing that you could possibly do, and no one here is endorsing that even though technically that may be technically endorsed under Castle Doctrine under your state, so, or your jurisdiction, I should say. So uh, no, they are different. The Castle Doctrine is a little bit more of a nuanced legal position. The I feared for my life, I think there's a gut check and there's uh, a lot of context to it, as there are to both, but no, they're different. And I have heard people tell me that, oh, oh, if I shoot someone, all I have to say is, I feared for my life, and then I'm okay. And I, I tell them, no, that's not true. There, there will be an investigation. I call those yeah. people clients. Yeah. So, or future <laughs> so, clients. Yeah. So um, next question up is, how does the Castle Doctrine differ from protecting your stuff? 
um, instead of protecting yourself. And one of the things I always tell people is, um, if you come home and you look through your window and there's somebody rummaging through your house, Castle Doctrine does not help you if you run inside and shoot them. That's that correct? I would say that certainly speaks to the spirit of the law. And the reason why I'm saying that as opposed to yes or no, aside from the fact that I'm an attorney and I'm generally incapable of giving one-word okay. answers, uh, is the fact that um, you really have to go and look at the wording in your jurisdiction, okay? Um, because it's, it's possible that a strict reading or that some sort of case law may support this or support that. There's a lot of weasel language of, well, I thought my wife was in the house. Turns out she was in the car because we came back from the grocery store or whatever the case may be. So there could be some back and forth. Uh, you really, really, really need to check your jurisdiction. But I would urge you that if you are in that circumstance, no, don't do a dynamic entry into your house and start putting lead down range into your kitchen. That's a really bad idea, really bad idea. Um, folks, if, you've, if you know anybody who's been through a very serious, it doesn't have to be self-defense case, just any legal proceeding, a divorce, a whatever it is, uh, you know how stressful that is. You know how combative, how expensive, how, how life-changing and sometimes life-ruining that can be. Um, it's gonna be that times 10 when you're facing at a possible life in prison uh, on the back end as a consequence on this. I don't know why people would voluntarily put themselves in that for anything other than, than themselves or loved ones, and only when they have to. Very good point. It's, uh, you, you don't want to be looking for that fight. You want to be no. looking to get out of that fight. Absolutely. So, um, now what happens if you are uh, in your home and, uh, and, and there's an intruder and you shoot and your home happens to be an apartment? Now you shoot through your apartment wall into the neighbor's apartment. Okay. Um, people want to know how that's all going to play out. I say you're responsible for every round you put down range. So what's going to happen? Well, the personal injury attorney who sues you afterwards is going to agree with that statement at a minimum, that, yeah, you're responsible for every round that you put down range. Again, not to, to go into a broken record here, it's going to be largely dependent upon what's the laws in your jurisdiction. So an example is something called transferred intent. If you initially acted under uh, a proper color of law, which is to say that you acted lawfully when you pulled that trigger, fired that round, and it left your, your firearm because you were acting in self-defense. However, you missed that individual, uh, or maybe you hit them, and it went through a couple layers of, of drywall, and now it broke somebody's fridge, or God forbid it hit their pad or even someone. Uh, you may be legally uh, okay you may not be legally okay. You may be legally okay or not okay from a criminal side, and that answer may change from a civil side. It really comes down to the specifics in your jurisdiction. And I realize if you're as nauseated by that as I am, I get it. I'm not saying this because I like to say it. I'm saying this because it's the truth, and frankly, you deserve to know. So becoming educated and fluent in how to read laws, how to look at all these different things, and learning what the laws are, where you are, can make all the difference. And I'll tell you as well, I've dealt with a number of cases where it's not only apartments. You know, People think that, oh, I'm in a house, I'm fine. I've dealt with a number of cases where people have used their firearms um, negligently or not negligently, and it's gone through their own house, multiple walls in their own house, through the exterior wall, in, across a yard, into their neighbor's house, and embedded in a bathtub as one example that comes to mind. So I would say that, look, 
it, this is not something that's unique to individuals in an apartment, in a condo circumstance. Uh, this is something that really applies to everybody um, who could foreseeably, uh, who can draw, who can see a neighbor's house, in mm -hmm. essence. Yeah. And we've done some testing on this stuff, folks. So check out our YouTube channel out there because um, we've shot into lots of different material to see what will stop bullets and what won't. And uh, one of the things that surprised me the most was that a dresser full of baby clothes stopped bullets cold, and I would never have guessed it. So um, <laughs> you need to understand what your bullets are going to do, and, and we're doing our best to give people some of that information. So, yeah. um, All right, what if I'm a guest in somebody else's home and a uh, bad guy kicks in the door, can I use my gun to stop him and claim Castle Doctrine? Well, you may be able to use your, your, your gun to stop them under either self-defense or defense of other, depending upon as the case may be. But there's, again, check your, 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 check your, your jurisdiction, right? Check your local <laughs> listings, that's right. Um, however, generally speaking, in my experience, keeping in mind that I'm a Wisconsin attorney practicing law here in Wisconsin, but generally speaking, castle doctrine is aimed at protecting your own house. If you've heard the expression, a man's castle or something like that, you know that we're not talking about, I have 10 castles and it's basically every other person's castle or business or car I get into. So keep in mind that this varies from state to state. And as an example here in Wisconsin, it has to be the actor's dwelling. In other words, if I'm at a friend's house and somebody breaks in, I may be able to use self-defense but I would not be able to use castle doctrines. So keep that in mind. Thank you very much. And, uh, and on that same vein, how far inside your house does an intruder have to be before you're uh, authorized to use force to stop him? Well, I would say that it, it comes to the point where they are creating a deadly threat to you. Uh, and there's no, there, I would say that there's no magic distance of feet from you or anything like that. It's entirely dependent upon context. Uh, people with knives can obviously run very quickly. I think it was that the Tuller drill yeah, off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah. Um, where if, uh, what is it? They, it was 21 feet is what the FBI said. They yeah. bumped it back to 28, right? Right. And and what that looks like is, is uh, can you get two accurate shots off in the time it takes an average person to cover that 21 feet and right. drawing from your holster? And typically, no, you can't. You know, that 21 feet is... Is uh, um, we call that a guideline. You know, it's, right. it's not a rule, but uh, yeah, at about that distance. Right, and that's what what we're talking about here is the fact that the FBI took a look at uh, situations where how fast can somebody draw from from a holster mm -hmm. and engage a threat, and then likewise, how fast can somebody cover X amount of feet, X amount of space within that same amount of time, and basically it. I think it was 21 feet, and then they updated it 28 feet, as I recall. Does that mm -hmm. sound about yeah. right? Yeah. So 28 feet with a knife from, a, from a, a charging attacker was something. But again, this all boils down to context. All right. Um, people want to know, um, do I have to tell police if I have other weapons in my home? Um, and I think we need more about that, <laughs> right. more on that question. Um, do I have to open my safe? You know, if I'm involved in a, in a deadly force incident or a defensive gun use in my home and I'm using the pistol that I have on me and then during the course of the investigation, the police officer says, do you have any other weapons in your home? What's, a, what's the right answer for that question? Well, I'm not sure that there is, frankly, again, a generically right answer. Uh, I'll tell you this, that if you are going to get charged with a crime, there's a very large chance that your bail or bond conditions are going to include a prohibition against possessing deadly deadly weapons okay um, that's very typical in my experience even if it's a small crime versus a big crime that's very standard bond conditions from what I'm used to seeing in other words 
you may not have to turn them over to the police, but they, they will be dispossessed from you. In other words, you will have to get them to a friend, a family member, someone that you do not have immediate access to, so to speak. So out of your home, in other words. Would I report it to the police if asked? I don't think I've ever had anybody ask me that question. Um, I, I suppose, uh, I mean, number one, never lie. Okay, so let's start there. Okay. Never lie. Um, I guess I don't really see the advantage to, so the, the possible harm here for, for t saying, yeah, I've got five guns or 50 guns, as the case may be, and they're down in this particular spot, uh, would be, you know, it's going to make you look like a tackleberry, so to speak, yeah. as somebody who, you know, I was rooting for this, uh, yeah. this, is what, this is what I wanted, I've been waiting for, you know, someone to come in, I can't tell you how many times I've left cash sitting just inside my door uh, in plain sight of the road. And no matter how many weapons you have, it will be described as an arsenal <clears throat> when it makes the newspaper. And so. that's very true. Uh, and for folks who don't believe, believe what Kevin just said, I have seen prosecutors in court characterize a home with, it was a couple hundred rounds in the whole house mm -hmm. as, as a cache of ammunition. Yeah. I've seen uh, officers describe in court homes with seven semi-automatic weapons as a horde, okay? So what Kevin's saying is beyond true to the point of being scary. Um, I, look, I don't have a straight answer to the question because I, going back to exactly how Kevin started this, this answer, as I would really want to know more. I would want to know more about you. I'd want to know more about all these different things. And that's part of what makes this so tricky as a process. And that's part of what makes it great that you folks are engaging is that we can't always give you the answers depending upon what the specifics are, but we can get you thinking and we can show you the landscape and some of the navigation points to guide yourself by as to what might be appropriate under this circumstances versus this other set of circumstances because things always change with time and place. And what might be the right answer in situation A may be the exact wrong answer in situation B, even if the laws don't change because you're in the same jurisdiction. And again, this is part of what makes it difficult, but this is also part of the generic reason why most criminal defense attorneys, myself included, generically tell clients, don't talk to the police, okay? Because you might be making the right call under generic situation A, but maybe some small nuance changed. And as a result of that, the legal conclusion of what you should be doing utterly changes. And even though what you said was correct under 90% of the time, well, you're in the other 10%. And now all of a sudden you said something that is going to be perhaps taken out of context, twisted around, maybe describing you as some sort of ammunition hoarder or anything of the sort. God forbid if you have over 200 rounds. I think it was 237 yeah. rounds. I don't know why that number's jumping out to me. Yeah. I think it was that. And most of this was 12 gauge like birdshot, let's be clear, okay? I'm in real trouble. I know, yeah. I think we're all in big trouble, so yeah. Um, a pretty good question here, and, and it's going to roll into a second question. So if an uninvited person is trying to gain entry to your house, break into your house, do you have to let them break in? At what point can you use the force? I mean, um, people are, are, are talking about shooting through the door. What, what's gotcha. going on? So again, check your local listings. I like that phrase. Yeah. I'm going to steal it here. But I will attribute it this time for Kevin. Uh, check your local listings as far as what the laws are in your jurisdiction. Here in Wisconsin, which is similar to many other states, it's somebody has broken into or is in the process of breaking into. All right. So if somebody's in the process of breaking into, but here's something to think about. All right, the bad guy's pounding on your door. It's 3 a.m. You use deadly force to shoot through that door. He's dead now on the ground. The prosecutor says, oh, well, 
you know, how do you know he's breaking into? He was just banging on the door. He was knocking on the door. Sure, he may have been trespassing on your front mm -hmm. property, but that's, that doesn't give rise to castle doctrine. In fact, that individual showed no ability to break through your door. Was he still actually a deadly threat? We don't even think that we have a castle doctrine, let because he wasn't breaking into. He had no... Uh, no burglary tools, no crowbar, no hammer, nothing like that. And the fact that he was not able to get through the door or bother to seek out a window, maybe that also shows the fact that he is no deadly threat. So keep in mind that uh, I would certainly be extraordinarily hesitant to be shooting through doors. Uh, it's, so at least at the minimum, an exterior door. I think interior doors are obviously different. Yeah. They've already broken into your house and so forth. Uh, any thoughts on that, Kevin? Well, it, it falls into what we call in the law enforcement community the totality of the circumstances. And the more evidence that you have that you are in grave danger, um, the, the better off you are going to be when you have to articulate what's going on to first the arriving officers and then to your attorney when you're telling your attorney why you did what you did while you're starting to put together that defense. So. Um, I, I would be hesitant to, to shoot through the door. The more damage that the person is doing trying to get into your house, the better claim you have for self-defense. Yeah, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's one of those things where the longer you wait to defend yourself, if the person does have a deadly intent, the better the evidence you're going to have to defend yourself with about why you had to use the self-defense. And obviously that's frustrating, and from a broader justice perspective, it may not always be fair if we had that perfect knowledge of they had deadly intent all along. Uh, the legal system, however, does not operate on perfect knowledge. It is an evidence-based process, and that's going to be the key here, all right? So just keep all that in mind. So now we twist this whole situation around into uh, how to choose your friends properly. You've invited someone into your house, mm. and you get in an argument, and uh, it uh, escalates to violence. Okay. And you decide that uh, because of this going on, you're going to need to use deadly force to protect yourself. Okay. Are you covered by a castle doctrine, or is that simply a self-defense claim that you have to prove differently? That will almost certainly be a self-defense claim. Um, invitation Again, let's rewind to a castle doctrine, what some of the triggering criteria. Somebody has to have broken into or be in the process of breaking into your house. Inviting somebody inside does not give you uh, a license to kill <laughs> or a license to use deadly force for that matter, even if you disinvite them and then they fail to leave. At least here in Wisconsin, I think that it would be reasonably clean cut that we're now in a vanilla, so to speak, uh, self-defense claim. Okay, um, sounds pretty good. How about uh, um, living space only or attached garage? Right. Um, where does where does Castle Doctrine stop? So I'm going to break out another legal word. We already got eggshells, folks. That's right, eggshell skull, curtilage. Okay, ah, yes. is that one? All yeah, right, I'm, Kevin's I'm nodding. Familiar with curtilage. He seems pretty excited about curtilage. Um, so there there's different definitions of property and dwelling and all this other kind of stuff. So. I hate to say this, but you're going to have to, again, check the local listings, but you're going to have to go beyond that because you have what's called the statute. The statute is basically the laws in most states and counties, and well, most states now, where uh, the legislature has put it together. Oftentimes, residences may have different definitions that go beyond that for different reasons. There can be zoning reasons, there could be tax reasons, there could be all sorts of different reasons as to what defines this versus that. I'm going to encourage you folks now to take it another level deeper. Look to see if there's any case law that have defined this, okay, um, as to, okay, so it says a residence, or it says a home, or it says a dwelling, or it says a this or that. What does that mean? Does that include the backyard? Probably not for Castle Doctrine, by the way. Uh, does that include the garage? Because do we, we don't really dwell in our garage. Uh, I mean, we don't sleep there, so to speak. 
Um, does that apply to, if it's where you're putting your head down to sleep for the night, could that apply to a hotel room? Could that mm -hmm. apply to a tent, a camper? If you're sleeping in your car, although many states castle doctrine does apply to your car when you're in it. So again, it's check your local listings. Uh, no attribution this time, Kevin. Uh, check your local listings as far as what the laws are in your particular time and place. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, next question coming up from a guy called, named Mike. Um, he wants to know if Castle Doctrine will protect me from getting sued civilly. Certain states may have civil liability protections. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear as to what we're talking about, there's, there's in effect two different processes that could arise from this. In reality, there's more, but the gist to it is that we're, we're really kind of in most cases, just talking about two. The first one is, am I going to be going to prison? In other words, what are the criminal ramifications in a criminal court context? The second one is, will I be able to keep my house? In other words, uh, what are the ramifications in a civil law context? So usually that follows a criminal case. Uh, it's not usually concurrent, it's consecutive to. In other words, they will wait for the criminal case to conclude before they sue you civilly, all right? Um, but that's where they're seeking damages, i.e. they're seeking money. They're not, they have, generally speaking, have no ability to put you behind, behind bars, but they can take your stuff. Um, sometimes Castle Doctrine laws may be able to grant, and depending upon where you are, other laws as well, generic self-defense laws, stand your ground laws, and so forth, may be able to give you some civil immunity if you have properly uh, triggered them in court. Um, that's something that not only a criminal law attorney would have to talk to, but probably more specifically a civil law attorney. Again, standard answer, depends upon your time and place. And just because you've been cleared criminally does not mean that you are now in the clear civilly. People can sue you for anything they want at any time, and, and you have to respond. Absolutely, and even more frustrating is that there's different. it's a different court process, there's different rules of engagement, and there's different burdens of proof. In criminal court here in the United States, we're focused on beyond a reasonable doubt. All right, so they're gonna to have to prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. There's gonna be varying, and generally speaking, always much, much, much lower burdens of proof in a civil court process. Uh, recall that O.J. Simpson was cleared criminally, but he was, in essence, found liable civilly to a much lower civil standard. So you can get confusing results, uh, as in that case, where somebody was, was cleared criminally, but can so to speak, convicted, not the real term for it, but found liable civilly. Um, and likewise, you can see similar things in, in other circumstances as well. So you gotta be careful about that. Thank you. Um, here's a really good question. Uh, the police are 15 minutes away. Someone's trying to break in my house. Should I waste time calling 911 or should I wait till after the incident calling 911? I'm gonna tell you straight up, call 911 and keep that line open. It will help in your defense, but it will also help the dispatcher tell the responding officer what's going on. If you get to the 911 dispatcher and you just leave the line open so they can hear what's going on, they can hear you barking orders at this person who's trying to come in, they can probably hear some of the crashing in the house or what else is going on. They can provide that officer some input as to what he can expect when he's getting at that scene. And, and then from a defense standpoint, from a legal defense standpoint, I believe the recordings there from 911 are really going to be helpful if you're doing things correctly. <clears throat> if you're doing things correctly, that's 100% of the emphasis, which of course you will be. That's the reason why you're here learning right now, right? Um, if you do things properly, I wish you were wearing 10 GoPro cameras. Just, just uh, you know, there's, there's a shout out for GoPro, I guess. Send us free stuff, I don't, I don't know. But, uh, um, you know, where, I wish everything, everybody was mic'd up if you're doing everything properly. Um, because otherwise, really what your defense attorneys and what your defense team are trying to do is we're going to be trying to recreate the evidence 
to prove and to show that you were acting properly. Um, so if you were able to capture that by doing exactly what Kevin said in response to this question, yeah, that's what we want to see. Thank you very much. Um, this one kind of interests me. I have access under my home, right under my bedroom, and uh, where I store some tools and lawn equipment. Uh, this is a question that's come in. My home alarm has a sensor on that door. Would I be right to go run someone off carrying my pistol if they're, they're breaking in into that area? Right. So it's an odd question because it's fundamentally two, two, two points of law meeting one another and, and seemingly contradictory. Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, we're only defending stuff because as the, as the questioner asked, we're only talking about some lawn equipment and tools. And it doesn't sound like there's access to the home mm -hmm. from that yeah, it cellar or whatever like it is. Yeah, it sounds like a separate storage area. Right, right. Um, however, that storage area may also be subject to Castle Doctrine laws. Uh, so in other words, you may technically, depending on your time and place, be able to use Castle Doctrine. Uh, I would say don't shoot them if, if, you, if you can. And in fact, I would avoid a confrontation that's just mm -hmm. me as somebody who works in this arena and I see the devastating consequences of people um, who get caught up in this, uh, even when they, they didn't try to, is I would avoid putting myself in a crosshairs. I would avoid, number one, any situation where myself or a loved one is gonna be getting hurt, and by the way, confronting somebody is creating a circumstance or creating a risk where that's possible. I don't know why you would want to create a possibly deadly encounter because you don't know if that person's armed, keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, you may be seeing them as someone who's just going after your, your wrench set, next thing you know, they're pulling out their own gun right back. Uh, if you knew that ahead of time, yeah. I don't think you, I mean, I hope you wouldn't have engaged them. Yeah, and, and I look at it this way, um, you're down there to protect that stuff, and if you're involved, even if you don't fire your gun, if, if, if something goes wrong and there's a criminal case, now you've got a $25,000 lawnmower that you just protected because that's what you have to pay to the attorney to protect you from all of this stuff that's happening. Or so. more than that, and also keep in mind, you may not survive that encounter um, yeah. as well. So Everybody assumes they're going to win the fight, and, right. and bad guys have some pretty good skills, you know, so uh, right. you, you might end up losing the fight. So we want to make sure that people, first and foremost, are safe, and then we can deal with the legal ramifications, but let's, let's focus on staying safe. Right, so generic answer is I wouldn't try to run them off my property with a shotgun or pistol. Uh, the legal answer is going to be, again, it depends. But I think that cops and prosecutors are going to take a very dubious uh, view of you and of trying to use Castle Doctrine in an event where, yeah, we're, we're, we're using the law as a, as a uh, you know, paper tiger here to protect ourselves. It really wasn't what it was created for. And it's possible that you could be at the receiving end of maybe some state attorney general's office or some prosecutor trying to craft a novel legal argument of, look, this wasn't the spirit of the law when the legislature in our particular state, wherever that is, when our legislature drafted and created and passed uh, Castle Doctrine. This was meant to protect people. Ergo, I realize this is what the law says, but this is not what the law was meant to be used for. And as a result, it really should not apply here. And all of a sudden, you thought you were standing behind something a firm wall uh, to protect yourself with, with this Castle Doctrine statute. And next thing you know, you're at the receiving end of a very enterprising prosecutor advancing a novel legal, legal argument where you've got everything righty on the line. So I would, I mean, don't, don't, please don't. 
Yeah, and and I guess to get more directly into that, what was the Castle Doctrine created for? I know you said protection of people, right? Correct, and that uh, to to give people some legal recourse um, in their home is that the the basis for this? Right. The basis for this is the fact that um, you know all too often in public, the good guys are are always we're always on the back heel, right? Uh, the bad guys choose where and when to attack. They choose how to attack. And as a result, we're, we are stuck reacting. At least if somebody is trying to break through the, your castle walls, they're trying to break down your front door, your back door, uh, you have a little bit of an early warning system of the fact that, look, somebody's breaking into your home. You're there. They may have a deadly threat. And you know what? We're not going to force you to wait until they start shooting at you. You're not going to force you to try to detect whether or not they have that weapon and they're lunging you. Uh, we're going to maybe try to even up the math here a little bit and give you an opportunity uh, to be a little bit more proactive, but only in your self-defense. Okay, thank you very much. Um, this next question comes from a guy named John, and I'm going to read it right off the screen because it's a little bit convoluted <laughs> as we go through this. My bedroom is in the basement. The stairs to the upstairs are visible from my bedroom door and are two small children who sleep in a bedroom at the top of the stairs. If there's an intruder working their way up the stairs, what happens if I shoot the intruder in the back to stop them from reaching the children's bedroom? Does Castle Doctrine protect me there? Sure. Uh, shooting people in, in back equals bad, but let's look at why. Uh, because it, generally speaking, implies that they were trying to flee the scene. It's, it creates a presumption, in essence, that somebody was trying to flee the scene and you stopped them by shooting them in the back. Obviously, however, if somebody's approaching your children's bedroom and you're, you open up your door and just with the angle, you're looking at their back as they're creeping towards your child's bedroom, that changes the circumstances here because they were in fact actually advancing. Uh, now, I think that there's gonna be a lot of forensics that may be able to quantify and would be able to show and explain the fact that, look, yeah, the blood splatters are facing the stairs going up as opposed to they were running down and it's against mm -hmm. you know the drywall as opposed to the steps. So there's gonna be a lot of things to be looking at, uh, but I would say Castle Doctrine would certainly apply under those circumstances. But keep in mind that law enforcement and the prosecutors may be, I assume, that, I mean, it's part of their job, quite frankly, to explore the possibility that, yeah, that person was trying to get away. So that's gonna obviously, the entire case there, I would imagine, would hinge on whether or not that person was advancing up the stairs or retreating down the stairs. Um, that could be one theory on that. And, and John, we need to explain too that uh, um, part of this question is, are you sure that person on the stairs was an intruder? Is it dark? Ha do you have proper target identification? Do you have proper target isolation? You're shooting your gun toward your children. You need to understand all of these sorts of things. From a tactical situation, not just a legal sense, maybe it's better to shout a command or, or give a verbal challenge or something like that to see what's going on. Because if you engage in gunfire without all of the information that you can possibly get, that can go nothing but poorly for you because the investigation is going to take days, and hours, months, years until they figure it all out. And you're acting in just the space of a few seconds. And I say this all the time, I repeat it over and over again, when you're involved in a defensive gun use, there will be an investigation because we're the good guys. We call the police, we wait for them to get there. And they're going to look over everything from top to bottom. So just shooting a guy in the back for going up the stairs, let's get a little bit more information before we engage, before we pull the trigger on that one. So next question up is about um, a barn on your property. And the barn has very valuable racehorses inside. 
Can you use your firearm to go out to the barn and protect those horses from an intruder who might be in the barn? So uh, I like horses too, but under every state that I'm familiar with, every jurisdiction I'm familiar with, horses are things, not people. They are, generally speaking, not afforded the same protections as though you're protecting your child, uh, another, another human being. Um, I'm sorry if that offends your sensibility. Uh, don't complain to us. Complain to your legislature, just to be clear. Uh, but look, you're probably going to be stuck under a use or a defensive stuff. So generally speaking, you can use non-lethal, non-deadly force in order to terminate the interference only as long as it's reasonable that it could terminate the interference. That's basically the law here in Wisconsin. Again, check your local listings, all right? So, uh, Kevin, any thoughts on that? I, I just had this conversation last night with a friend of mine who she about asked racehorses? About, about protecting her dogs. Okay. And I had to tell her, Dasha, I'm sorry, they're, they're, those are, you might think they're your children, but they're not. They're, that's property. Right. And, and uh, her, her solution <laughs> to the problem was, well, I will just get between the bad guy and my dogs, and then he will have to hurt me to get to the dogs, and then I can use force to stop him. Um, I don't think that's going to be, you know, she might be someone you would call a client. If, that, uh, that, that's client talk right <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, if, uh, oh, if we're to going to it. do that. But um, as, as distasteful as it may be, your pets are not family, and, and you can't use deadly force to protect them. They're still classified under the law as property, so you're, you're defending stuff. So um, here's a good question. It is my understanding that I'm allowed to have my gun in hand as I approach the door, as long as I don't aim it at anyone i.e. it's not assault if you don't point it at anyone. Am I allowed to have my gun in my hand when on my property with the same caveat? At what point do concealed carry laws take over? Is it when I leave the house or when I leave my property? So I'm assuming this guy's thinking, okay, I got my gun and I'm running outside to protect something in my underwear and I'm holding the gun, but I'm not pointing it at anybody. Is it an assault? Is it brandishing? I mean, lots of things could go on here. Lots of things could go on. So you're answering the door and cops arrive uh, and they're the people who are knocking on your door. They may take a little bit of a different view on that, as you can imagine. And again, nobody here is saying that this is fair. We just have to deal with what some of the practicalities are. Do you approach the door and you're holding this, this handgun and you're, are you menacing them? Is it, is it quite clear from the context that, frankly, there's a subcontext that's going on here? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> If I had to answer the door holding a gun in, in, in my hand, uh, I'm not sure I'd be answering that door, just kind of speaking for myself. Doors don't stop bullets. <laughs> Doors don't stop bullets, um, and not every time somebody who carries a gun is stopping bullets either. Uh, so look, um, check your local listings, check what the, what the local laws are in your jurisdiction. Uh, I, th I think that, I had to say it, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of, of, of uh, kind of a client question, for lack of a way of putting mm -hmm. it. And what I mean is people who are being very aggressive, um, and that doesn't mean that you're bad, it doesn't mean that you're evil or anything of the sort. I'm just saying that it's a little eccentric. We'll say that charitably. And the problem is that we're saying that here, and I think we're all pretty like-minded company when it comes to what we want our firearm laws and the Second Amendment to be interpreted as. How do you think somebody who may be an anti-gun prosecutor uh, how do you think they're going to be interpreting that situation as, oh, here's a normal, well-balanced human being. This is normal behavior. Um, I, I don't think they're going to be giving you the benefit of the doubt, and I think that they may be looking for reasons to hit you as opposed to looking for reasons not to. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, what kind of person just automatically draws his gun when there's a knock at the door? That's right, yeah. right. Probably shut down the meth lab. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, look, like I said, I, I, we all get it. You know, we're not trying to rag on you, whoever, whoever you are. We'll call you Matt. Um, you know, we're not trying to rag on you, whoever you are. But um, just be cautious of how this kind of stuff is going to be getting interpreted mm. wherever you are. As opposed to when can you, when is a concealed carry, when is it not? Uh, again, let me give you an example to at least give some context as to why I'm always saying check your local listings and why you need to check your local jurisdiction. Generally speaking, concealed carry laws are written so that if the, law, if the firearm is concealed from plain view, then concealed means concealed. And uh, usually they say that you are going concealed somewhere. But oftentimes, going concealed is, again, a surprisingly nebulous question. Sometimes these laws may be written in such a way, but interpreted by courts in a way that may not be immediately evident. So as an example here in Wisconsin, you could conceal carry in your house, but it took a Wisconsin court, uh, a higher level court, to decide that you could also conceal carry uh, in your business, as an example. Um, so that may be something of, well, are you really going concealed if you own the business, maybe you even own the, the real estate that it's on, though it's not your dwelling, maybe it's your shop or whatever. Uh, again, you have to be really cautious about what does going mean, because oftentimes those verbs, those adjectives, those sorts of nouns and so forth uh, can be surprisingly tricky creatures. And again, none of us here are excited about that, but that's the reason why you're watching is the fact that this is not simple stuff. This is not simple stuff at all. So you have to be very careful, and you have to start to do those deep dives on it. Thank you very much. Um, next question up, we, we've talked about motor vehicles and things like that, and the Castle Doctrine involved in a motor vehicle. But uh, the question is, does it recognize a camper um, or a motorhome or something like that? But the important part of this question I see over there is a tent. Okay, You're set up on a campsite, or you're camping somewhere, and you're in your tent. Is that your domicile? Is that uh, can you now protect that under the right. castle doctrine? <clears throat> are the are the are the dwellings here, so to speak? Are they specific? Again, check your local listings. And not to sound again like the broken record, but truly, folks, this really all varies so much. Uh, is dwelling defined as to where you're putting your head down in the pillow that night, or are they defined by where your driver's license say that you live? Uh, is your domicile where you're sleeping? Is it something where you have to establish a residency? Here's kind of an interesting thing to know. I had a case, uh, it, was a, it was a firearm case several years ago, and it dealt with somebody who had recently moved to Wisconsin from another state. And uh, they had been living here for a little bit. They were returning with their family. Their family was still in the other state, but they had a concealed carry license in the other state. And the issue that he had to use his firearm in self-defense, the issue here, however, he was not charged with anything other than concealed carry. The state of Wisconsin was claiming that he had been in Wisconsin long enough to establish residency here. And as a result of that, his out-of-state concealed carry license, which would have been lawful here in Wisconsin, was no longer valid because he no longer was a resident of that state. Ergo, he had to have gotten a license in this state, in Wisconsin. Uh, right, pretty ticky-tack, but again, this is the reason why you're watching. So. What happened? Well, I found out that Wisconsin's concealed carry laws, when it comes to looking at uh, what, is, what does it count as residency, it just says once you've established residency. Great. Do you have any idea how many definitions of residency there are? <laughs> there's voting residency, there's school district residency, uh, there's uh, all sorts of tax residencies, there's, I mean, you, there's, I, last I counted, I mean, there was at least a half dozen to about a dozen, I think, pushing, I want to say a dozen or so, 
definitions of residency that had various uh, applications, but the Wisconsin concealed carry statute did not reference which one are we using. Are we using a very short residency deadline like voting, which may be five days or a week in many states, or are we using a very long deadline like taxes as an example, which can be a longer one to establish residency in a state? Are we using a super long one like an in-state tuition discount, which may take a couple years in order to establish? So those are all different things to be taking into account is the fact that Again, these simple words, don't just Google it and look it up, all right? This is where you have to really educate yourself because you may have grabbed the wrong definition. Uh, and that's just, again, all things to keep in mind. Uh, and uh, because this is a members only <laughs> webinar, Tom, I can, <laughs> okay. uh, I can uh, let you guys in on a little secret that uh, we will be uh, covering uh, campers in uh, the next Proving Ground uh. and live training broadcast. We, uh, we have uh, our, our group actually chose the wrong campground because this just went wildly out of control. So, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. For yeah. anybody who have not seen the, the live training broadcasts, things have a way of going wildly out of control quite yeah, a bit. And, and uh, the, uh, the first scenario in the, in the Proving Ground at the campground uh, played out over 11 minutes. So it was, it was quite interesting, uh, the, w the way everything went. So we'll be talking about that in, in upcoming episodes. One quick thing to also point out for folks, if you're camping somewhere, I assume that you're in some sort of forest, some sort of park, maybe it's a state forest, maybe it's a county forest, maybe it's a county park, maybe it's a federal forest, you name it. Um, all those may have different laws about the possession yes, of firearms, so. all that kind of stuff as well. So yeah. we're talking about self-defense laws. Keep in mind, if you're on a federal park, do your state laws necessarily apply? Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. And there are some county parks I know in Wisconsin that prohibit firearms in, in the county park buildings. So you can't right. take your firearms into the, the restrooms or the outhouses or anything like that. So right. all of those things people need to find out. Um, we got a question coming up here. Somebody's coming at me, Tom, so I need, I need you to back me up on this one. I dispute the editor, that's me, the editor, I dispute the editor's opinion that you should carry a CCW badge with you and uh, uh, stating, you know, I'm a, you've seen the badges. that you know, I, I know, you know the badges, person, yes. You know. I, I have had actually one reader tell me, yes, I'm, I'm carrying the CCW badge and I'm going to hold it up and holler, stop, please, because they might think that I'm saying stop, police. Um, I say the CCW badge is one of the worst ideas out there. It, it can do nothing but cause confusion, and the last thing you want is people being confused about who you are and what you're doing with your gun. Well, also the last thing I want to do is take another hand off my gun. The last thing I want to do is be reaching for two things instead of one. I mean, so what, are you reaching for the badge before the gun? Well, I don't know why you'd be doing that. Are we reaching for them at the same time? Good luck with that. I mean. Are we, now we have our gun up and we're, we're drawing down on the individual who's apparently trying to kill me or maybe about to kill me, and now I'm gonna take a hand off that gun to go fumble for, I mean, setting aside the fact that yes, I agree with you from a legal context, again, coming from, from the trenches of the criminal justice system, you're gonna get a lot of weird looks and frankly, probably very aggressive treatment from, uh, from prosecutors and, and judges and juries who are going to look at this as that situation of, I hate to call it the Tackleberry effect, but for those of you who are Police Academy fans, um, hi to all three of you, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> but um, I got it. I got it, all right, so there's someone here. All right, I like, I like it too. But anyway, we're probably all Tackleberries if we're watching this to some degree or another. But the point being is that, are they gonna try to use that badge to paint you as some sort of 
bloodthirsty confrontation seeker, even though that may be genuinely, and probably is genuinely, the furthest thing from the truth. So they're going to use that, or I could very easily see them using that, uh, as basically going towards your third legal term for all of you members, your mens rea, M-E-N-S space R-E-A, which is Latin for basically your, your state of mind, your purpose of mind when you acted. Um, I think that I could very easily see aggressive prosecutors claiming that as a result of you carrying this badge, let's set aside from the, the, the fact that maybe you're being charged for impersonating a police officer. Yeah. Let's set that felony to the, mo to the side for the moment. Um, and let's also set aside all the concerns about the dual draw, taking your hand off a weapon, what order do you go in, which I think is a very practical reason just not to do it, just period, right there, yeah. just, from, just from surviving the encounter. Because I imagine the whole reason why they're doing that is they want to increase their odds of survival, which is fine. And maybe you can paint a situation where you're behind some sort of door or some sort of wall and somebody's doing this, in which case I would say, why aren't you escaping? But maybe, again, going further, they're trapped in that bathroom and they don't know where else to go. Right, I, I don't know. Um, you, you're going to get some pretty rough and aggressive treatment, would, or at least you're risking that from the prosecutors. Um, I would generically be against it as well. Yeah, and I think that falls right into the same category as, as having um, um, uh, modifications to your firearm or, you know, the Punisher grips on there, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out. Right. I think it's all going to fall into that, that same situation. Is, is an aggressive prosecutor can use that against you, um, you know, Absolutely. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. So um, they will. And as yeah, as we're, as we're winding down here, we're we're getting close to the end of the hour. I want to talk a little bit about, and we've we've been getting calls and questions about the red flag laws in the country. And uh, um, currently, 13 states have some sort of red flag laws. So I'll just let you take it from here and and let folks know what's going on with those. Sure. So the red flag laws. What are they? So red flags red red flag laws. Pardon. Are Issues and circumstances where somebody, if you ever heard of the kind of the see something, say something, uh, these laws have been largely a response to Sandy Hook and other tragic events where somebody has said after the fact, you know, I guess maybe there were some warning signs. So certain states have enacted laws that allows that neighbor, that friend, that whoever it may be, maybe it's no one that you know, to basically report you to the authorities and perhaps with no due process, in other words, you may not even know that's happening, let alone have the ability to be present, to confront the witnesses, to present your own evidence, and to be represented by an attorney, uh, to be able to seize your firearms, make you ineligible, basically make you a prohibited possessor for a period of time, maybe even up to a year. So this is something that we're starting to see uh, as kind of a political tactic of what do we do next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and... Right now, um, like I said, 13 states, not every state has them, uh, but you know, people can call the police and, and make a statement and you can end up uh, um, on the bad side of the law here. So we need to have people be aware of that. We've had one case in Maryland where a man resisted giving up his guns and ended up getting shot and killed by the police. Right. So it's a, it's a situation that uh, we're kind of watching closely and see what we want to do about that now. So. Looks like, uh, again, like I told last time, our, uh, my therapist says our time is up. Uh, we're coming to the end here. Um, uh, Tom, um, the, the online reviews, I know you like to yes. talk about those. Um, let's make Folks. sure we get those. Yeah, so if you feel like you've gotten anything useful from me today, if you feel like you were even somewhat like, meh, that's a good point, maybe I'll consider that. Something that really, really, truly helps us and our ability for me to be here to help you out is leaving us positive online reviews. You can do that by clicking on the button below, 
leave Tom a Google review. It's absolutely free, it takes you just a couple moments. You can also Google us, grievelaw.com, G-R-I-E-V-E, law. Uh, and Google, we're looking for those Google reviews, you know, however many stars you see. Now folks on those stars, just very briefly, it's the internet, four out of five stars is basically a failing grade. So if you felt like you got something out of this, I would ask for please, 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 five out of five stars. The Google reviews, I cannot stress enough, are super important to me, super important to the firm, so I really appreciate it. And likewise, the good folks at the USCCA, in order to help put this on and keep the content free for members, Really yeah, need these reviews absolutely. as well. Absolutely, uh, Google reviews are, are are really helping us as well. And again, a five star Google review would be great. Um, I also want to remind you: don't forget about your weekly training video. Every Saturday, we're going to send members a weekly training video. You'll get to see me and lots of other people telling you how to survive the incident. So. Um, we're giving you as much stuff as we possibly can on this members-only content, and we really hope you appreciate it. So until next time, I'm Kevin, this is Tom, and we'll be here with Ask an Attorney. Thanks.